If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's podcast, we've got an interview with Helen Burkett about the spread of medieval news. Helen is Senior Lecturer in Medieval History at the University of Exeter, with a particular research interest in communications and how information, in particular news, was transmitted in the Middle Ages. Our content director, David Musgrove, met up with her in Exeter to find out more. First question, I suppose, is is we think of news and, and we think of of print and we think of Caxton printing press and that's you know that's where news comes from I, I guess that's that's what we tend to think so that's obviously uh, later than the period that we're talking about w- why are we talking about news in the medieval period well how does that how how's that even affect well it? I love your skepticism because this is actually a problem so there's two things that uh, are really important to consider when thinking about news in the middle ages and they're to do with first of all We don't know that much about news in the Middle Ages or before the advent of print. And that's an interesting historical problem in itself. So that's something I want to explore just for my own intellectual satisfaction. But it also causes problems for the general history of news. So the history of news, as you said, is really tied to the history of print and printed media. So the history of news tends to be the history of newspapers, although Now that we have broadcast news, things are broadening out a bit more in the modern period. Now, this focus on news and its relationship to modern news and modernity and what makes the modern period distinctive means that we get this history of news intertwined with bigger assumptions about the modern world. So news is seen to be crucial in the modern world because it's a really foundational part of modern political culture. So... Discussions about news and the circulation of news helps uh, alert voters to what they should vote for. It helps us um, hold those in power to account. We've also seen that kind of idea of progress towards modernity through the history of news and its relationship to communications. So news progresses with the great leaps in communication with print, then with telecommunications, and now with that digital world. That's giving us access to news all over the planet at the exact moment it's happening. Sure. And also allied with that, we have news becoming part of this discussion of the history of the experience of time. So news is seen as part of this heightened sense of the present that is distinctively modern. 
So all this kind of history of news is tied up with this idea of the modern world. And for the early modernists, they've noticed this relationship and they position themselves as foundational in the history of news. Like you said, they say, look, newspapers emerge in our period and we have the growth of that modern commercial news market. And all this kind of narrative of the history of news is based on ideas of difference. So early modern and modern news is different to what went before. Mm -hmm. The medieval period is other um, news and communication stuck in the dark ages. It's completely different to what happens. Now, that's a really nice narrative. It's really clear. It's really simple. But it's got a problem because we don't know that much about news in the Middle Ages. So even just knowing a bit more about what's happening has the potential to unsettle this kind of complacent discussion about modernity. For example, instead of looking at difference, what happens if we focus on continuities in communications between that medieval and early modern period? Um, this is something that early modernists are actually doing. They've noticed that despite the um, advent of print and the growth of newspapers, scribal news, handwritten news, still plays a really important role. Now that is an older technology, that is evidence of a continuity of practice. You know, you could look back at the medieval world and think, well, what was scribal news doing then? So, so if we start so, to emphasize these kind of histories of continuity, then maybe we start to pick up on a different understanding of what news is in the present. You know, we start to highlight what the real difference is, what the real changes are. So wait a second, are you saying that even after the printing press, people were scribal news um, oh. was, was, still, was still a, a big thing? Yes, people are still writing newsletters and circulating them. Uh, and it's actually, the reasons for it are quite obvious in a sense. It's because printed news can be censored and handwritten news can't be. Mm. So the role of scribal news, um, I think, may still retain some real importance in totalitarian uh, cultures because it's something that's not as easily monitored, not as easily censored. Okay, that's an interesting point. Um, so, okay, uh, going back to the, the medieval period, though, what, what, you, you've had a look at it. What, in your view, sort of constitutes news in, in, in the Middle Ages? Well, this is a really important thing in the way that I think we should reconceive um, this whole discussion about news. So the focus on modern news has kind of created a focus on genres of news. So if we look at historical news, for example, the 18th or 19th century, we think, okay, let's go to a newspaper. Let's go and look at that. If we want to look at news in the Middle Ages, well, it's before newspapers. So like, well, where is the news? We don't know what news is. So you have to think again, well, what is news in this period? And the definition that I'm working with is that news is the exchange of new time-sensitive information that alerts others to changes in their wider or immediate environment. So it's news as a social exchange. It's where people communicate and create bonds with each other, so individuals and groups, but they're also sharing um, norms about their society with this news, both positive and negative. So thinking about it as a social interaction opens up a wider perspective on news already. So it stops us being tied to genre. Now this works particularly well for predominantly oral cultures like the Middle Ages, because most of the news there is spoken and heard. So you're having news circulating through um, social networks at all social levels. They're probably exclusive, so they're not interacting that much. But I think they're, probably, they're also probably 
quite um, effective. So that presents a, a problem for you in researching medieval news, though, if, you, if you're saying it's all oral, but that's well, that's not going to... It's not, not all oral. So most of it, I think, is oral. But when we think about it as a social exchange, well, when people are talking to each other about news in everyday life, occasionally we might have mentions of that in the sources, but we don't have those conversations recorded. However, if those people are trying to have that conversation at a distance, then they need to use a written medium to get in touch. They need to use letters. So letters are a really important source of news in the Middle Ages. Okay, so that's so that's good. That gives us a, an opportunity to jump into this um, particular um, episode that you've looked at, uh, the exchange of letters, uh, around about um, uh, 1187. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, you're going to have to sketch out the story for us, but basically, we're talking about um, how the uh, the story of the uh, Battle of Hattin uh, in 1187, and then the fall of Jerusalem, um, was uh, communicated from uh, the Middle East into Western Europe into Christendom. So, can you just sort of sketch out what's happening there, to, so so we can uh, be be clear about it? So we have the Battle of Hattin on the 4th of July, and this is where Saladin and his army defeat the main Christian forces in the Holy Land. And this is um, a really, well, it's a real disaster for the Christians in the East. Uh, We have the capture of the King of Jerusalem and also the capture of the relic of the True Cross. So there's a kind of uh, double whammy there where they lose the ruler and they also lose their talisman over there. Now, the defeat at Hattin really decimates Christian forces in the east, and it leaves the Holy Land vulnerable to Saladin's forces, who then march through and city after city fall in the autumn of 1187. And this culminates in the Siege of Jerusalem, which um, starts in late September. And within just two weeks, Jerusalem falls on the 2nd of October to Saladin. So this is this is bad news for the Crusader states. This is this is pretty serious stuff. Well, it's bad news for the Crusader states, but it's a real heart-stopping moment for people in Europe as well, Western Europe. So Jerusalem is at the centre of their mental world. After the capture of Jerusalem um, in the First Crusade, it seemed as preordained that Christians should have Jerusalem. And to lose it, um, it really it upsets them. It makes them wonder what's going on. Why is God so angry with us, is the question they're asking. And, and the response in, in Western Christendom is the, uh, is the Third Crusade. Yes. Which happens, when's, when's that, and now, when does that happen? Well, the launch of the Third Crusade happens at the end of October. Uh, and it's one of the quickest responses to um, horrific news from the East that we get from the papacy. It's a real immediate response to terrible news and also one which is unusually emotional. Uh, the response of the papacy, the papal encyclical, Audita Tremendi, is a really emotional document. You get a real sense of the shock and horror that um, is there at the Curia, the Papal Curia, when this news breaks. Okay, so um, we've got a really constrained time period here, haven't we? Because we've got the fall of Jerusalem, um, was that 2nd of October, is that right? Yes. And then we've got the announcement of the Third Crusade, are we saying 29th October, is that right? Something like that? Yes. Yeah, 1187, so So that's only... That, that's in a month. So if you... it's in a month, but actually those two things aren't directly related. No. Um, so, but if in in the modern 
news environment, you would think, well, okay, well, that's clearly those two things must be linked, and so uh, that's you know you would you would chart the progress. Well, this is also the impression we get from the chronicles and histories documenting this. Okay. So, our sources for um, events in the Middle Ages are mostly chronicles and histories, and they take this kind of global perspective on events. So they record events as they happened, not when they hear about them. You know, that would make for a very ne- uh, an overly messy um, way of representing the past. So they're simplifying it, they're organising it. Yeah. When I've been looking at the evidence, the launch of the Third Crusade is clearly in response to news of the Battle of Hattin and some of those other major cities fallen. I think they know about the threat to post, so the threat posed to Jerusalem in uh, autumn 1187, but when the Third Crusade is launched, they think it's going to hold out for a much longer time period than it does. Okay, so so any link between the actual fall and the actual announcement is uh, of the Third Crusade that's just that's just too tight because how long are we thinking it takes to get um, uh, news from the Middle East, the Holy Land to Western Europe? The answer is it varies. Mm. And this is one of the really interesting things about um, the case study. So at its optimum, uh, that news possibly could have got there in that time. Really? So if everything had been fine, if all communications networks had been functioning as normal, as expected, uh, it might well have made it. But you have several things to consider. The first of those is um, the variability of the sea crossing across the Mediterranean. Now, it's quite seasonal, and it's also dependent on the sea conditions at that particular time. There are better times to cross the Mediterranean um, in the years, and those times are spring and autumn. Because of the prevailing winds. Because of the wind. So until you're able to navigate not being, or sorry, you're able to sail not being reliant on the winds, that remains an issue into the early modern world. So we have the variability of the sea crossing. Um, this is quite interesting when we think about how news of Hattin comes across in uh, between late summer and early autumn. We have in the set of letters that remain um, alerting the West to what's gone on. And these letters are, they contain news, but also they're the people in the East desperate for aid. They're saying, this is what's happened. Come and give us support. So it's not just simple newsletters. Anyway, so we have these letters being sent. The earliest one seems to be about late July, early August. And where is it sent from? Well, in the East, it's one of those ones where we don't quite know who's sending it, but we do know that it's circulating in Germany in late November. Okay. Now, it's quite an early letter that's sent, but our evidence for when news of Hattin actually reaches the papal curia in Ferrara, well, I think that's about. Um, early to mid-October. Now, I think what happens is we have several different letters being sent between this period, in this kind of early, late summer, early autumn period. So there's this really early letter, and then there's some later letters that are sent around about September. And they're still talking about Hattin because that is, you know, that is recognised as the major event that has caused the um, the advance of Muslim forces through the East, but it also documents the other cities that are falling. So you get this kind of rolling news coverage in a sense when you look at these letters. 
But I think these letters, even though they're written at quite different times, they arrive in the curia at about the same point. And that variability in how long it's taken these letters to come over to the West, so between one and three months to reach the curia, that's about those communications in the East and the variability of that sea crossing. And the sea crossing is presumably the best way to do it. Whatever the, the, the maritime conditions, it's going to be quicker than trying to travel over land. Probably, probably. Okay. Um, so you, you, we, we talked about that first letter and you said you're not quite sure who, who wrote it or where it was from. Do, you've identified some 20 letters or something like that that, that are talking about these talking about these events. Um, we must know who some of them uh, are written Oh, by. yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so who's writing them? And then how are they getting, how are they actually being taken back? Is, is the person who's written them taking them back or is there some system of... Uh, of, of, of porterage in some way? Yes, yeah, so we have about 13 letters that I think are sent from the East in this period that cover Hattin, various cities falling, and including the fall of Jerusalem, so over a longer time period. And they're sent by, I don't know, we might call them stakeholders or interested parties in the Holy Land. So we have the rulers um, in the Holy Land, so Prince Beaumont of Antioch, uh, we have important letters sent by the monastic military orders or you know, the semi-monastic military orders. Mm. So we're talking about the Templars and the Knights Hospitallers. We also have, in addition to letters, we have envoys coming over. So Archbishop Josius of Tyre comes over himself and later narratives, the um, old French narratives about this period, they say that he travels over in this boat with a black sail so mm-hmm. that people know he's bringing terrible news. Uh, he comes over to Europe and... Do you think that's true, by the way? Would it, I mean, it <laughs> seems like quite a... How would you, how would you happen to have some black sails lying around? But... I really don't know if it's true or not. Um, it's an unusual detail to include for that story. And the, one of the really interesting things about this emphasis on Archbishop Josius is that when I've looked at the other evidence it bears out that later story that he's playing this important role in bringing the news to the West. Mm. But it may have some kind of classical associations that they're playing with. um, Then we have Archbishop Josius himself going around spreading news. So I think he's probably also carrying some other letters from Tyre. I can't be sure, but that's my suspicion. But he's also there passing on this written, documented um, letter about events but he's supplying extra information. He's trying to persuade people to come to the aid of those in the Holy Land. Is that Was he coming back on an actual mission to do that, to beg for help, or was he coming back with some other alternative motive? Oh, that, no, no. That was it. <laughs> that would, to think that he has a different motive would be a misunderstanding of the situation. This is a disaster. This is his main reason for coming to Europe, to promote um, military intervention. Okay, so it would be in his interest, or in the interest of his mission, to make it make the news sound as bad and as bleak as possible, presumably. Yes, it would be. But the news is bad, mm. and the news is bleak, so it's it's not a stretch for him. Yeah, no, I'm just wondering about how far we can tell sort of the the factual accuracy of the news that's being transmitted by these people. Like, you know, obviously. Everyone's got a motive. Everyone's got, got a re- mm-hmm. you know, if you're going to write a newsletter, there has to be a reason why you would do that. Nobody's going to be paying you. There's no concept of a paid journalist at this period, is there? So if you're writing news to somebody, there is a reason why you're doing it. And so 
it's your job, I guess, as the historian to try and understand what that motive is and to and to make sure that you can be clear about what they're trying to say and, and how that links to the uh, historical veracity of, of their story. Yeah, no, that is an important point. They're not always um, shy about their motives, though. Mm-hmm. So this idea that the news is impartial, well, um, that's not really the case. They're always putting a spin on it. But because of the way that we tend to have news being contained in sections of letters that discuss other matters or make demands based on news, the motivations for writing those letters are normally quite transparent. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Were people in the Middle Ages very, very different? Were they substantially different? Have we evolved since then? Or do they have the same cognitive functions? Are they still homo homo sapiens as we are? This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Okay, so we've got letters moving from high-powered people in the Middle East to high-powered people in the West. And then uh, things happen as a consequence of that. So the Third Crusade is launched as a consequence of the news of the Battle of Yeah, And this is, this is one of the things that I think makes this example so useful and so interesting, is that we have the initial burst of news of what's going on in the East is kind of contained in elite circles. So these are letters between elite groups or groups that are interested in um, potentially the uh, economic activities in the Holy Land. So we have Genoese merchants bringing this news back. Um, We have the military orders um, who are based in the West, but active in the Holy Land. So obviously they're part of that, uh, that group that's particularly interested in it. Then when it gets to the papal curia, the new story changes, it gets new features. So um, 
Gregory VIII issues Audita Tremendi, which is a call to crusade. And it's a call to crusade for all Christians. It's saying something terrible has happened. We need to respond. So he wants a military response, but he also imposes a penitential fast on uh, the Christians in Western Europe. You know, this is to say, think about what you've done. Think about how we can appease God and change the situation. And all Christians are expected to undertake this fast. So we get a real, well, tangible shift in a new story that might have been contained to the elites if it was just about international politics. But this is now something that has to go right through society. And that comes from the papacy. So it spreads out through the church's network. So it spreads out to bishops who then um, take it down through their own networks in their diocese down to parish level. Now, also as part of that, we have this call for crusade. Um, our rulers, our elites are meant to go on crusade and they need resources and manpower. So again, we're having um, international elite politics having an effect that is more than just the elite. So um, this call for resources and manpower is probably most uh, evident in England and France where, well, particularly England, where they levy a Saladin tithe. So uh, a tithe is levied by the king in order to pay for a crusading army. And for that tithe to be effective, well, possibly he can strung out money out of people, but actually there's also a, a case where he can persuade them with this news that this is why you need to contribute. So we have people at the lowest level of society knowing about events in the Holy Land. So, so this is where it gets really interesting for me because I can I get the idea about these high level communication networks and things happening as a result of that, and that's you know that feels like a a reasonable thing, and, and you can understand that. But when it comes to saying right, um, there's a there's a peasant walking down the road in Melton Mowbray, and he says you know he says to his friend Bob, "Have you heard the news about the Crusades?" That just feels that feels like a, an unlikely scenario in the mid, in the Middle Ages to me because my my no doubt incorrect view is that you know people's lives are, are so constrained in their village and you know and they hardly ever leave the village and you know they're all about the agriculture and the news that they would be talking about would be the west meadows flooded that's the news uh but to think about people saying having an interest in international in politics at the time just seems anomalous to me so so how, so so put me right well one of the things about news is that it has to be relevant to the audience. Otherwise, it's just new information that they're not particularly engaging with. So when you have news, you're always assuming that the audience is interested in it. And we have different types of news circulating. We have family news, we have personal news, etc. Now, because of our interest in modern news genres, we tend to just focus on hard news and high political news. Well, we have all these different types of news circulating in the Middle Ages. And people will be interested in news that impacts on them or is relevant to them. Yeah. And there are points at which high elite international events will have an impact on um, that peasant Bob. Yeah. And I think we should imagine that they will know about them if it's going to have a tangible effect on their lives. And we also shouldn't limit them by saying that, well, actually, of course, they're not interested in these other areas. When you think about the centrality of Jerusalem and the Holy Land to them as Christians and part of a wider Christian community, this is news that is going to affect them. So, do you think? Um, let's just try and delve into that a bit more. Do you think, from what you've um, from what you've looked at, that um, the average man in the street would have had 
what, what's, what sort of geopolitical knowledge would they have had? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's almost it's impossible to tell, isn't it? But you, you, what you're saying is they must have had something. Um, and certainly if they were going to pay the Saladin tithe, then they, you know, they would have been encouraged to learn about it because that would have given them an incentive to pay. So this is one of these really interesting questions about medieval news. And I'm going to talk about uh, Archbishop Baldwin of Canterbury's preaching tour in Wales Excellent. in Lent 1188. So he um, takes undertakes this preaching tour to convince the Welsh to join the Crusade army. And we know a lot about this tour because Gerald of Wales uh, wrote a whole book about it. And what's really interesting there is that we have um, the Archbishop meeting with Southern Princes of Wales at the start of his tour in New Radnor. And then he goes on, he makes his progress through Wales and he arrives in places and encounters crowds. Okay. So I think we have to imagine that those crowds have been gathered there for a purpose and that they probably know what that purpose is. They know they're there to hear some crusade preaching. This becomes even clearer, I think, when we have the example put forward by Gerald of Wales when he's uh, He's explaining, as he often does, what a great person he is, how talented he is, um, how his rhetorical capabilities are supreme. And he says, well, you know, I preach to uh, the Welsh around me um, in languages they didn't understand. So there's preaching going on in Latin and French. Yet still they came up and took the cross and they had um, tears you know, coming from their eyes, weeping, etc. Now, if we think about that, if they're there, if they're responding to this, but they don't know the language, then, well, there might be translators present around them. But the more obvious idea is that they know why they're there. They already know this news. So I want to get away from this idea that people in the Middle Ages are just randomly milling around towns and convening without an idea that there might be news and they're suddenly presented with news and this is very exciting for them. I actually want to think about this as a much more dynamic news environment, where they probably know a lot more and they have much wider interests than we might think. So that requires a network, you know, communication networks going on, uh, which would presumably be oral, as you, as you mm -hmm. alluded to earlier, um, to A, get them into the right place at the right time, yeah, uh, yeah. and so B, then to be interested enough to, to, to actually get them. There's a really nice example that um, got me thinking in great deep, uh, depth about this topic, which is slightly earlier. And it's about some, the communication of the election of the Pope in Jerusalem in the 1160s. And it's during a schism. And we have people being convened to hear this news. And what's really interesting is that we know they're being convened and we know that they know what they're going to hear because it's also recorded that they send their apologies to the Pope and congratulate him on his election. Yeah. So... There's a sense at which people might actually gather to hear more about news, you know, so they have the headlines and they want to engage with it further. And I think that's perhaps how we should understand some of um, the preaching of the crusade, uh, some of these crowds gathering, is that they have a sense of what they're already there for, um, that they may well know the main story, but they want to know about it more. And in a sense, just as we might post things on Twitter and hope to get some kind of crowd reaction to help reinforce that we're thinking about things in the right way or that other people share our understanding and response. I think we have that kind of communal nature of news. Yeah. yeah. We'll come back to social media in a second if we can. But I'm just <laughs> I'm thinking, um, 
just, just inter- this is really interesting in terms of the concept of, of, of place and time, I think, because we've got these, you know, these, these news stories are traveling over quite a long period. So, you know, things happening in July and then you're hearing about them several months later. Do what, what does that make us feel about how medieval people would have understood about time and about the distances involved and their reaction to it? You know, would it, would they have would they have grasped the fact that something's happened quite a long way away, quite a long time ago, and that their reaction to that, even if it is immediate, is not going to, you know, things will have moved on where that story happened. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, well, news isn't when the event happens; it's when you hear about it. Yeah. So it's news to you at that point. Uh, and I think one of the things that makes makes people engage with news that happened possibly far away and possibly in the within a few months, maybe even longer, is that they have that emotional or intellectual response to it. So there's a kind of it stops them in their tracks slightly and they're kind of in the sensation of that moment of wow, this is new and exciting, or this is tragic, or oh, I didn't expect that. So that sense of news, that sense of the moment is for them, not in relation to that event. And the kind of other aspect of your question, well, they wanted to hear the news as soon as possible, and they understood the limitations of contemporary communications. So they wouldn't expect to hear things instantaneously, but they would expect to hear it as soon as um, might be feasible for the state of the communications networks, or um, how long it might take to get from particular places. And in terms of their reaction to it, so the, the Pope issuing the, the Third Crusade as a consequence of hearing about the, the Battle of Hattie, mm. do, do you, I mean, do you think he would have uh, thought to himself, well, anything could have happened in the intervening period between the battle and me hearing the news? So it, the, the response that he gives is that, do, do we, is there any way to understand that? Yeah. Well, this kind of brings us back to um, another point about the, the, the dissemination of news of Hattin and Jerusalem that I talked about in this article. And one of the unexpected things from this uh, case study was that the evidence indicated that news of the fall of Jerusalem is delayed. I don't think it arrives in the West until probably March 1188. Now, previously, we thought it arrived in November, so we thought it moved very quickly. But I think because of the dislocation in um, the Holy Land means that those communications, those normal communications networks have been taken out. There's also, you might think, well, surely the refugees from Jerusalem. So um, we have various refugees moving out of Jerusalem after it falls. Actually, they're, they're controlled quite carefully. They're taken under armed guard to the borders of the Kingdom of Jerusalem. Um, we do have some who are taken to Alexandria, where actually they seem to be interned until March 1188. So even people who know about it, their movement isn't quite as free. And then plus you have, um, because of the seasonal nature of maritime travel, we have a lot of ships being laid up for the winter because you know the, the seas get rough. There's not actually a great deal of point in putting them out there. So there are fewer vessels available to take news across. Now, one of the questions I have been asked is, you know, what is the impact of this delay about not hearing about Jerusalem? And well, 
our interpretation of what might have happened has changed rather than the actual events. But I do wonder if that extended delay, um, the difference is an emotional one. So we have this news of Hattie in mid-October and what's happened, and we have an understanding that there is a threat posed to Jerusalem and that Jerusalem's fate is hanging in the balance. And possibly that really spurs on an urgency in terms of preparations for the crusade and the transmission of this news. And it may be that when this news comes through that actually Jerusalem's fallen, that that sense of urgency ebbs away a bit. And we might factor that into the delay in the actual military response to what happens in the East. So we don't have the big expeditions, the big crusade expeditions setting out until 1189. Um, that's really interesting. But you, you've mentioned a couple of times there, sort of the emotional reaction to, to news. And um, that just puts me in the mind of, of, of our modern reaction to news. And, and there's a couple of things there. A, we're often told we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't, look at the news too much because you know we can't do anything about it and it's just you know people people get addicted to the news and you know constantly on twitter trying to find out what's what's happening and actually if you waited a bit then you would find out and it would be clearer and in that sort of thing and then the other side of the coin is that um we hear about news we hear about terrible things happening and there's nothing we can do about it and it just makes us feel guilty and stressed and 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 you know sad and and, and it isn't good for us either um is there any sense that either of those two things are sort of in play in, in the Middle Ages? Are people hearing news from places like, you know, like the fall of Jerusalem and, and tearing their hair out and thinking this is the worst thing in the world and, uh, and, uh, and feeling impotent about it? Well, so you bring up the fall of Jerusalem there. And one of the weirdest things about this whole um, the transmission of news of the fall of Jerusalem is that it's a big cultural memory of what happens in 1187. But actually finding out when this news comes to Europe was really difficult because I don't have that moment where they say, oh, no, Jerusalem's fallen. I have mm. people remembering that there might have been a moment like that, but they don't tell me when it happened. So in terms of this feeling of impotence at events being very far away, well, that's mitigated a bit in this instance because the Pope says there are things you can do. And one of them is you know, having going on this fast that you should be doing, thinking about your own um, soul and the nature of your own sin, and also supporting this crusade. So there is a way in which they can respond actively to this news. But um, it is something that impacts on uh, medieval people, and it does seem to shock them and upset them and make them angry because they wonder what exactly has happened out in the crusader states. Is it their fault? Mm -hmm. Okay, um, but but this is, these are hard things to understand. I guess these oh. are hard things to to get into. Well, so one of the big questions about medieval news, which is really tough, is reception. So people responding to news. Now it's actually not that easy in the modern world either to understand exactly how people are receiving news and getting a real feel for um, what people do with news stories, how they interpret them. And it gets even harder when you get to the Middle Ages, when a lot of that discussion is oral and isn't recorded. We can get a sense of how people hear about news and when they hear about news, because we see their response, an active response. Um, and we do have people discussing these events. So people are writing uh, 
tracks to promote people joining the Crusades. Uh, we have kind of discussions of responses by chroniclers, so saying oh, you know, everybody was weeping because it was terrible news. And those are the kind of indications we get. But that bigger question of reception and how people respond to news is a tough one. And one, way, one of the ways I think we have to think about it is when people spread news, they assume it's going to be of interest and relevant to its recipients. Now, they may be wrong in that. And in the modern world, we have examples of that where newspaper stories are spun an entirely wrong way and get a poor response. Yeah. But it's hard for us to measure that in the Middle Ages. So we have to kind of, we have to interpret the expected response as the probable response of the audience. Now, there are limits to that, but I still think looking at news in the Middle Ages, despite these um, differences in evidence and the difference in availability of evidence, is still a really useful thing to do because what my case study did um, was flagged up how knowing more about the information that is available at the time will help us understand the actions of decision makers. It puts us much more effectively in their shoes. Okay. Um, just a couple more things. I, I mentioned we should, I said we should talk about social media quickly. Um, <laughs> I was just thinking, um, you know, if, uh, if, if I've done something good, uh, if I've run a marathon or something, then I want to post it on Facebook so all my friends know about it and, you know, can applaud me and, and, and say how brilliant it is. Um, is there any element that transmission of news in the Middle Ages was, was, was uh, de developed by that sort of thing? But, you know, I imagine if I'd want to, if I was a, a big lord and I'd want a big battle, I'd want, everyone to know about it so i would how would i how would i transmit that information that social media kind of news so that everyone knows that i'm the big guy and i've done the, the, you know the good thing well you could talk about it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it'll operate differently on different levels so you could just tell your friends um you might be subject to comments about a lack of humility uh but that's one way of spreading that information or if it's uh an elite or state power, you might have that proclaimed throughout your kingdom. Uh, you might have it proclaimed by, in England, possibly sheriffs. Later on, we have town criers, or you might have it um, proclaimed from the pulpit. If you have won a victory in a battle, which isn't quite the same thing we spread on social media today, actually, it's probably got some political implications. So there is a, a bigger political background to that kind of thing. Again, for example, good news about the birth of a new royal heir or a new heir to an estate. That's kind of a good news story, but it also has big implications in terms of, you know, have an heir who will inherit that. Um, there won't be any problems of succession, etc. So perhaps sharing the kind of the good news stories, again, we might be looking at the bigger impact of those. It's not, if you want to share little tidbits about maybe, you know, had a particularly good crop it's probably something you'll do orally i suppose um the last thing is is going back to what you talked about to start with and that this is a, an understudied uh, area and that uh, um that sort of a, a lack of recognition that news in the middle ages is even a thing um i imagine it was quite difficult for you to do carry out the research for this case study that you've done in terms of trying to find all these letters and and and, and uh, locate the sources um where where does this go? What's what what's the what's what's the future for medieval news research? What do you want to see happen? 
I'd like to see us look at news more closely and carefully. So I think looking into medieval news further, understanding how it's transmitted, um, how people respond to it, uh, what it actually means to people in the Middle Ages, I think will just expand our knowledge base. And that's very important because it will help um, deepen the history of news. So one of the things that strikes me when I look at news in the Middle Ages is that there is a wider vocabulary for news. So in Latin, in my case study, they're using words like nuncium, uh, rumor, farmer. If you look at Middle English terms, you have tithings, news, word, report, fame. So we have a much more varied vocabulary than just kind of the simple term news that we use today. And I wonder if that points to news being conceived in different, more interesting ways. So this bigger understanding of news and the kind of a more diverse context of news will help us think about news differently in the modern world and the early modern world. So I think there's a real value there. In terms of um, things that I want to do with this research further, well, looking at news raises all kinds of interesting questions, particularly when you have a look at what um, scholars of the early modern and modern world have said about it. So when I've been reading these works, I've been struck by how strange their idea of the Middle Ages is at certain points. And one of these discussions that I'm going to follow up at the moment is a discussion about, well, what is the difference between news and history? And this plays into a bigger discussion about news and its relationship to the experience of time and the present. And because of the way that our news sources from the Middle Ages are preserved, so we tend to have these letters preserved in chronicles and histories where they provide these ready-made narratives of events that have happened. There's been a kind of an assumption from later, well, scholars of later periods to say, oh, okay, so they're putting news in a chronicle. Our chronicle, that seems to be the newspaper equivalent. And here they think, well, yeah, we have chronicle used as a newspaper title. So they're seeing a continuity there. But actually, they're completely right when they say, look, Medieval people putting news in chronicles, they're seeing it as a historical thing. There's something that's happened and it's gone, it's in the past. They don't really have a proper sense of the present because they don't have a proper news medium. And this is part of this bigger argument of, well, they saw it as something that was in the past and that occurred long ago, whereas now in the modern world, we're part of this present news, ever-changing environment. And that's a misreading of the evidence. Modern, early modern historians are right. That recording of news in Chronicles is a historical process. It's about an archive. So the easiest way to think about it, I think, is uh, taking a cutting from a newspaper and putting it in a scrapbook as a kind of historical collection. Mm. The understanding of this kind of division between news and history is present in the Middle Ages. It's just that that discussion about news as a present thing is probably happening orally. And some of those newsletters are ephemeral and they're being thrown away once they've served their purpose. But even just asking that question of when does news become history is a really important one for us to play around with because it reveals more about our sources and more about how news is functioning. And it takes us back to um, a bigger approach to history, which characterizes how you will see the modern versus the medieval world, which is were people in the Middle Ages very, very different? Were they substantially different? Have we evolved since then? 
or do they have the same cognitive functions? Are they still homo sapiens, homo sapiens as we are? Now, if you think the former, if you think we're very, very different, it's easier for you to say they experience time and news in a very different way. If you think they're very much similar to us, but living in a different technological environment, have different cultural expectations, values, but still have that same cognitive function, well, the news will operate in a very similar way. It's just that the way it's recorded and how they choose to, I don't know, keep it or respond to it might be different. But it's one of the things I really like about this project is that it's throwing up some really important bigger questions. So when is the current, the kind of the stopping point between news, current events and history? Uh, what does that experience of the present mean in a much earlier context? And can we use news to explore that? I think yes. <laughs> but, um, you know, other people might disagree with me based on how they think about humans and uh, change. If you enjoyed this discussion and want to hear more from Helen on this subject, she recently wrote an academic article about news in the Middle Ages for the journal Viator. There's also a whole load more material on medieval life on our website at historyextra.com forward slash medieval. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Friday when James Shapiro will be discussing his new book, Shakespeare in a Divided America. <laughs>